this is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode four, Evolution and Aging. I ended episode two on a note about aging, and we picked that up again in today's episode. Longevity is one area of research I have a special interest in, not just because it's fascinating from a scientific point of view, but I believe strongly in radical life extension, or at least having the choice of radical life extension. When I say longevity or life extension, I don't just mean increasing lifespan, but rather health span. This means maximizing the years we can live a healthy life for. In other words, the promise of longevity isn't to increase your life expectancy to 200 years just so you can spend the last 100 years of your life bedridden with eroded joints and eroded memories. What I mean when I say longevity is something like this. Imagine living like a healthy 50 year old for at least 50 years of your life. Function, emotions and mind all intact. Now, longevity is a massive topic and it's made up of many subtopics, each worthy of being a separate discipline in its own right. On top of that, all of these subtopics can be examined through various lenses and there is no way I'm going to be able to cover everything on this. But longevity will be a long running theme of the podcast, no pun intended. And I will touch on areas which I think are important and worth speaking about, whether that's some of the science, some practical interventions or the new technologies at the forefront of this movement. And so where to start with such a topic? Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with evolution. Just as a brief recap, evolution is the manner by which living things or biological organisms change over time. To be more specific, it is the change in the inherited traits of a population from one generation to the next. Evolution relies on something called natural selection. Natural selection is a process that causes heritable traits which are helpful for survival and reproduction to become more common and be passed down the generations and harmful traits to become more rare. To look at it from a bit more of a practical point of view, think of it this way. Individuals with characteristics best suited to their environment are more likely to survive, find food, avoid predators and resist diseases. Now these individuals are more likely to reproduce and pass their genes on to their children. Individuals which are poorly adapted to their environment are less likely to survive and reproduce. As a result, their genes are less likely to be passed on to the next generation. But there is a paradox at the heart of evolution. Now, evolution favors survival and reproductive success. This is something which is ingrained in the existence of numerous organisms. Let's look at one example from human beings, lactose tolerance. The introduction of cattle farming or cattle domestication in certain populations about 10,000 years ago meant that individuals who could tolerate milk or lactose would have an increased advantage since they had access to a rich nutrition source. And this resulted in a rise in the number of people from those areas who became lactose tolerant. Lactose intolerance was the norm, but lactose tolerance was the result of evolution because it provided a survival advantage. In the animal world, giraffes which developed long necks had access to leaves in higher and otherwise difficult to reach places. And so giraffes with longer necks had an advantage. They were more likely to survive, reproduce and pass on this gene to their offspring. Another example is that of male peacocks who evolved to develop large vibrant tails to maximize their mating opportunity as this is what attracted peahens. We even see this in bacteria. For example, antibiotic resistance is because of a small number of the most resilient bacteria who go on to survive and reproduce at an alarming rate within a short time span, resulting in a resurgence of the infection. So why does aging exist? Aging is a major risk factor for disease and death. It's marked by an increasing deterioration at the physical, physiological and psychological level. 
The longer we live, the greater the probability we will die tomorrow. Evolution should have selected against aging, since aging doesn't contribute to our survival or reproductive success. In other words, aging should have become extinct, but it persists. It seems odd that humans make the near-miraculous journey of going from a zygote to a complex structure with advanced biological engineering at multiple levels. So we do the hard part of going from something simple to something intricately complex, but then we can't seem to maintain our existing structure. It gradually falls apart and we wither away and die. It's quite puzzling. In the 1940s, a scientist named JBS Haldane thought the clues to this puzzle could be found in an illness called Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is a neurological illness where the patient suffers from disturbances in three areas, movement, cognition, and mental health. And so typical symptoms could be involuntary jerky movements, difficulty in moving, memory lapses, difficulty in concentrating, mood changes, depression, and later down the line, difficulty in swallowing, speaking, or breathing. It is progressively deteriorating, which means it gets worse and worse over time and there is no cure for it. Patients usually die within 10 to 20 years from when the symptoms first appear. It is caused by a faulty HTT gene. So it's odd that natural selection hasn't driven out the responsible gene from the gene pool. Haldane realized the symptoms of Huntington's disease usually became apparent between 30 to 40 years of age. He also noted that life expectancy for much of human civilization was lower than this age range of 30 to 40 years. From this, Haldane thought that even if our ancestors had this mutation, by the time its symptoms became visible, they would have been dead. From an evolutionary perspective, natural selection couldn't have driven out the faulty gene responsible for the disease because nature never encountered the disease. The ancestors would have died long before the symptoms became apparent. And so Huntington's was hidden from nature. To give an analogy, imagine we live in a world where smartphones have an expiry date of two years. So after two years, almost all smartphones become useless and we need new ones. However, some smartphones have a specific defect which messes up the screen display, but it takes about four years for this defect to become visible. The engineering teams are unaware that such a defect exists. Now, given that customers change their phone every two years, none of them keep the phone long enough to see the screen display becoming faulty. And so they don't communicate this defect back to the phone company. Both sides are unaware of the problem. The problem exists, but it hasn't manifested. It's hidden from both sides. Moving the story forward, we come to something called the mutation accumulation hypothesis. The name sounds like a bit of a mouthful, but it's okay. It's not important for us to memorize the name. The theory itself is quite intuitive. This is the first of the three theories or chapters that we will briefly touch upon, which go on to explain the mystery of why aging exists from an evolutionary viewpoint. Peter Medawa was a British biologist who took Haldane's ideas a bit further. Now, since the symptoms of Huntington's disease became apparent at 30 to 40 years of age, this historically would have been outside the reproductive window. So it would have been after the typical childbearing age for females. This meant that the defective gene causing Huntington's didn't actually interfere with reproduction as the offspring are already conceived by them. Medawa thought that as a result, natural selection had no reason to remove these genes, the faulty genes, which cause Huntington's because natural selection's interest in preserving or removing genes is only linked to how early and to what extent these genes impact the person during their reproductive years. 
In other words, it seems as if nature is interested in human beings, but only up until the point we reproduce. After that, not so much. Medawa also brought some of Haldane's ideas regarding aging into the picture. He noticed that in the past, most organisms faced high extrinsic mortality, which meant that people died because of external environmental reasons. Examples of these are predators, competitors, limited resources, or diseases from the external environment such as infections. Much of human civilization didn't live long enough to experience the decline of aging because of this high extrinsic mortality, and so as a result, their likelihood of being alive and reproducing at an older age is extremely low. Medawa concluded that the force of natural selection declines with age, which basically means nature becomes less effective at its job as people grow older. It can no longer eliminate harmful mutations whose effects are seen later on in life or after the reproductive period. Natural selection is inefficient in eliminating harmful mutations and they build up in our genome, causing detrimental effects. The buildup of these detrimental effects later on in life is what we refer to as aging. Also, if the symptoms only become apparent after the reproductive period, this means the carriers, the parents, have already passed on these defects to their offspring and these defects, and therefore the illness, will be present in the next generation as well. And this was Medawa's mutation accumulation hypothesis. And so, aging has persisted not because of some greater good, but rather because natural selection becomes weaker over age. This is the underlying fundamental basis for the evolutionary theory of aging. But the story doesn't stop here. Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls can help explain the next part. The next part, or the second theory, is called the antagonistic pleiotropy hypothesis. Again, the name sounds a bit complicated, but we don't need to worry about the name. Now, we've seen how undesirable traits can be hidden from natural selection, but could there be any possible scenario where nature actually favors undesirable traits? A quick thought experiment. The year is 1993, and you are the coach of the Chicago Bulls basketball team, and your star player is none other than Michael Jordan. It's near impossible to win without him. In order to reach the NBA championship final, you need to win your next game. However, Michael Jordan has a bit of an injury. He can play this match, but if he does, he won't be able to play in the final should the Bulls win. It can be assumed that if Michael Jordan plays, the Chicago Bulls will win. But if he doesn't, then the Bulls will lose. Now, as a coach, what would you do? Would you rest Michael Jordan in this game to save him for the final? But without him, you don't make it to the final. The other option you have is to play him now, win this game, secure your place in the final, and then come up with another game plan in what to do in the final without Michael Jordan. Which option would you pick? Now, the second option sounds better. You're essentially making a trade-off. You're securing survival and success in the present at the cost of incurring potential harm later in the tournament. But what matters is survival in the present moment. Because if you don't have that, well, it doesn't matter what happens later down the line. And this is essentially what the antagonistic pleiotropy hypothesis is about. According to the antagonistic pleiotropy hypothesis, natural selection favors pleiotropic genes which enhance fitness early in life, but result in harmful consequences at a later age. Put another way, the same genes responsible for beneficial and positive effects on reproduction and fitness early in life will actually have harmful effects later on. So if the positive effects in the early phase of life outweigh the negative effects occurring later, 
these genes will be actively selected for and perpetuated. These harmful effects experienced later in life are what cause aging. This late life decline is the cost of enhanced fertility and fitness experienced early on. According to this theory, aging is a side effect of this trade-off favored by nature. So what are some examples of antagonistic pleiotropy in humans? In males, high testosterone levels during youth are important for reproduction and muscular strength. But in old age, these same high levels can cause an increased risk of prostate cancer. Then there is something called the TNF-alpha IL-10 ratio. This is basically an inflammatory marker and a higher ratio of this inflammatory marker is thought to protect against infections during the reproductive years. But later on in life, it's thought to be associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And then there is the sickle cell trait. Individuals who have two mutations for the hemoglobin gene suffer from sickle cell anemia. But those with just one mutation have the sickle cell trait and these individuals are actually resistant to malaria. These were just some examples of antagonistic pleiotropy in humans. If you google it, there are countless others. And now we move on to the final part of the story. The third and final theory is called the disposable soma theory. And yes, once again, we don't need to worry too much about the name. It's worth remembering that living organisms strive to preserve the genetic information. It's as if we want our DNA to live forever. So what are some of the ways that this can be achieved? Well, as human beings, we can try and live forever, or we could produce lots of offspring who will carry our genetic code, or we could try and do both. We could try and live forever and produce lots of offspring. These are choices to be made on the background of scarce resources. And this is what underlies the principle of the disposable soma theory, our third and final theory. This theory is seen as an extension of the last one that we spoke about, and it involves another trade-off. It can be summarized as the choice that living organisms face in how to optimally allocate limited resources for growth, repair, and reproduction. In other words, how much to invest in living longer versus producing more offspring. And once again, I'll give an analogy to make this a bit more clearer. When we buy a new car, it's usually in pristine condition, but over time, it suffers wear and tear. We need to have it regularly checked and serviced, and if faults develop, then we need to have it repaired. Now there comes a point when the car no longer functions as well it used to. Now this could be because we haven't kept it in good conditions ourselves, or because the car has faced harsh environmental conditions, such as idiotic drivers or bumpy roads. So eventually, there comes a time when it no longer makes sense in spending money into its service and repair because financially, it's better to actually just go ahead and buy a new car rather than spend tons of money repairing the existing one. And so we choose to buy a new car. This is essentially the disposable Soma theory, except we are the first car, our offspring are the second car, and nature is us. Much like a car, our body is prone to damage because of mutations, cellular dysfunction, mechanical wear and tear, and various other things. Now, all of these accumulate and contribute to the aging process. All of this damage, it requires fixing and maintenance, which requires resources. And these resources have a cost, and this cost tends to be incredibly high. The reason for this high cost is because it requires a lot of resources to repair and maintain our complex cellular and biological machinery. Think of the cost required in repairing and maintaining a bicycle versus a submarine. Plus, it's even more costly when this has to be done over a lengthy period of time. Also, even if the repair and maintenance was a viable option, 
This wouldn't protect us against external sources of mortality, such as predators, accidents, natural disasters. So even if we invested all of our resources in keeping us going with the repair and maintenance, there's no guarantee of protection against these external forces. And so this would be a poor investment choice. Compared to this, reproduction is a strategy with much lower costs. Nature deems investing in reproduction over repair because it yields superior long-term returns. Reproduction is a much more efficient way of preserving our genetic information rather than repair and maintenance of our bodies. So the result of this is the following. During the early years, right up until the reproductive period, nature gives enough resources for repair and maintenance. But after this, nature allocates very few resources to repair and maintenance. We know this from the fact that whenever we injure ourselves in childhood, our regeneration capacity is much greater than what it is later down the line. Aging is the byproduct of a trade-off for increased reproductive success in youth and caused by an inability to repair the progressive accumulation of the damage that our bodies sustain over time. And so in all three of these theories, aging is usually the result of a trade-off that nature is willing to make. It's worth noting that all three of these are just theories and there are scientists and researchers who don't necessarily agree with these. And so whilst this is not settled science, these three theories are widely accepted as the evolutionary reasons for why aging exists. Interestingly, up until now, it seems as if no specific genes have been identified which conclusively cause aging, but there are genes identified which are responsible for repair and maintenance. I'll repeat this once more because it's important to understand the difference. So it seems as if there are no genes responsible for aging that have been identified, but there are genes responsible for repair and maintenance. And it's when these genes, the ones responsible for repair, become faulty, that's when there is a buildup of damage, which is what causes aging. This subtle but important distinction tells us one thing. Aging is not programmed into our genetic code. And so we don't have to accept aging as an inevitability. This was episode four of the Stars and Bacteria podcast and the first of an ongoing series on the topic of aging and longevity. I know people stand divided on this topic about whether radical life extension is a good thing or not. I can only encourage you to read up on both sides of the issue and to tune into the podcast regularly as we go about tackling these topics. I also recommend you to have these discussions with your family and friends and take their thoughts on board. Please leave any feedback or comments in the Instagram or LinkedIn posts. And to catch all future episodes, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit the follow or subscribe button. If you could leave a rating or a review, that would be great. It helps spread the word. Till next time.